it does seem as if we are back to invasions again. We end the course uh, the way we began it, except they're different invaders. Um, one thing that I'm sure Professor Frank will want you to get out of the Vikings course, and not all of you are going to take that, obviously, so I will mention this, is they did not have horned helmets. Uh, uh, the horned helmet idea, actually Roberta Frank has researched where this totally inaccurate idea comes from and um, uh, why it is uh, ineradicable. But um, if there's one thing you should come out of the second part of this course knowing, it's that. So we're discussing people from Scandinavia, different parts of Scandinavia, who had different destinations. So different parts of Scandinavia, uh, Denmark, Norway, Sweden. Different destinations, the Frankish Empire of Charlemagne, for which they bear some responsibility for unraveling, uh, Russia, the British Isles, Iceland, Greenland, the New World. Uh, they certainly got around. They're not always the same um, uh, populations, uh, and they have different ambitions in different places. Basically, those ambitions can be uh, divided into uh, raiding, trading, and settling. Uh, these are not mutually exclusive. Uh, oh, usually they began by raiding, uh, almost always if they were dealing with a place that had people. Thus, obviously, um, uh, uh, Iceland, when they came, didn't have people at all, uh, so uh, they came there as uh, explorers or settlers. Uh, the crucial changeover is in their attacks on the British Isles and on the Frankish Empire. They begin as raiders, that is, as seaborne um, warriors who would plunder uh, opportunistic targets, monasteries, for example, um, and uh, then leave with their uh, spoils. They also, however, were traders. And I don't want to make too much of this as if it were a timeless statement, but in the period we're dealing with, raiding and trading weren't all that far apart. Uh, when the Vikings in the east, mostly from Sweden, were dealing with the um, caliphate in Baghdad or the uh, Byzantine Empire, they found these targets too well organized with too uh, um, overpowering a military presence uh, to intimidate in the way that they were able to do with Britain and the Frankish Empire. So here they were more traders. Uh, they brought um, uh, various products, particularly slaves and fur, to the Caliphate and to the Byzantine Empire, uh, and they came back with uh, a lot of coins, among other things. Um, uh, 80,000 coins from the Caliphate have been found in Sweden alone. So here they're traders, settlers. Um, they would uh, uh, eventually settle in the Frankish Empire and in the um, Anglo-Saxon uh, Kingdom of England. Uh, they would settle in Ireland. Indeed, the city of Dublin was founded uh, by the Vikings. Uh, they would settle in Iceland completely, that is the people who live in Iceland now are the descendants of mostly Norwegian, some Danish uh, uh, settlers uh, of the um, 10th and 11th centuries. 
uh, they would even try to settle as far um, afield as Newfoundland. Uh, there is uh, a place in Newfoundland that uh, is unmistakably, by the archaeological evidence, a Viking site. Um, uh, this doesn't ultimately work. So it is wrong to think of them exclusively as savage warriors, as barbarians, but then again we've seen that it's wrong to think of most of the invading peoples of the period we've been discussing as just totally savage raiders. Uh, these are extremely skilled raiders, and as I've just gotten through saying, they're raiders with several different possible agendas. They're very adaptive. The question remains, what made Scandinavia so powerful in the 9th and 10th centuries, especially since Scandinavia tends not to be um, a, a um, uh, major actor in European politics. So the two periods in which it is are this one, basically the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, and the 17th century, when the armies of Sweden under Gustavus Adolphus terrorized um, Central Europe. Uh, the, uh, that uh, effort was ultimately ended not in Central Europe, but in Eastern Europe by Russia. And the Russians defeated the Swedes sufficiently in the early 18th century so that they basically never got themselves very heavily involved in European politics again. Um, part of the answer of why Scandinavia, why now, is that we're dealing with another savage or certainly less civilized population who erupt from their homeland and devastate a weak but relatively rich society. There's nothing very unusual about that. Uh, we have seen it with the Roman Empire uh, and uh, uh, you can see it later with such uh, successful campaigns as those of the Mongols in the 13th century. So uh, the other reason besides opportunity is tactics. The Vikings were masters of the sea. If you ever do go to Denmark, Sweden, or Norway, you must go to the Viking museums there. They're absolutely enthralling. And you see these ships that seem unbelievably flimsy for the voyages that they undertook. On the other hand, by reason of their small size and particularly shallow draft, that is to say, they're able to be stable without being so deep underneath the ship, you know, having a keel underneath, um, that they can't sail up rivers. They can both, therefore, go in the Atlantic uh, uh, and be stable enough to make the journey and go up rivers that are no more than five or six feet deep at points like the Seine uh, in France or the Loire in France. And so they could raid far inland with these ships. And as masters of seas and rivers, they um, could easily outrun the clumsy, slow Carolingian armies. They could um, raid a monastery, uh, check out another monastery the same afternoon. Uh, oh, there's an army there. Well, we'll just get back in the ship and we'll go further down. And then we'll, we'll look for more tempting targets. Palaces, towns, uh, uh, monasteries. They were not good at fortification. If a place was fortified, they tended to pass it by. They were not siege masters. Uh, their control, therefore, of the 
water is not dissimilar to the Arabs' advantage uh, in the beginning of the Arab expansion that we talked about with regard to the desert. The desert functions the same way. An environment that these people controlled in the sense that they could maneuver easily in it and their more civilized opponent with larger armies could not. The Persian and the Byzantine armies couldn't really go very far into the desert. They had supply line water problems. They actually didn't know the desert. It all looked the same to them. Uh, so this is the same or at least a similar advantage for the Vikings. Uh, the Vikings are different from other raiders, uh, partly in their ability to construct governments, not only to settle lands, but to create governments ranging from the, you know, what advertises itself with some accuracy as the world's oldest democracy, Iceland, where, you know, tourists are still pointed out the place where the kind of parliament of all um, uh, citizens took place as early as um, a thousand years ago. And they're also the founders of Russia, uh, probably not to be advertised as the world's oldest democracy. Uh, certainly not a country that's had a whole lot of experience with that particular form of government. But in fact, the first Christian rulers of Russia, uh, the same of Vladimir and his successors who were baptized and crowned by Byzantine, under Byzantine auspices, were uh, Scandinavian. And the Scandinavian groups are called the Rus. They quickly lose their um, Scandinavian language and identity, but <coughs> nevertheless, that is the founding dynasty of the first Russian rulers. So the Vikings uh, uh, have a fascinating culture and literature, uh, uh, amazing sagas, mostly preserved through their Icelandic uh, versions. Um, uh, very interesting art, very interesting forms of decoration, uh, and then these magnificent uh, ships. Their major contribution to the history of Europe may be geopolitical, in the sense that they connect parts of the world that were otherwise minimally or not at all connected. So from Central Asia to Greenland, they build various kinds of cultural and particularly commercial uh, networks. They also contribute to the destroying of the Carolingian Empire, to the destroying of what we were discussing before the vacation. They're not the sole cause. We talked about weaknesses within the Carolingian Empire, but certainly the Viking invasions that devastated it during the ninth century uh, uh, did not at all help. Where did this drive for expansion come from uh, besides opportunity? Um, and there's not a tremendous agreement on this point among scholars. Uh, overpopulation and land hunger are possible. To this day, these are not densely populated countries. Uh, and in the pre-modern period, they could not support uh, uh, anything but a very small population, given the fact that most of the land is not uh, capable of being cultivated. So you can get to a point of overpopulation pretty quickly. Um, opportunities afforded by the weakness of others. Uh, I've mentioned this. Uh, internal feuding and the creation of exiles. 
Uh, it's hard to separate legend from history, but the legends about the founding of Iceland and Greenland in particular involve people who were too rowdy for the Vikings. I pause on that because it's a little hard to imagine what such a person would have been like. Uh, nevertheless, the sagas uh, tell us that various people were just too mean uh, for um, quiet, civilized old Norway, or even couldn't get their energies fulfilled by plundering the Frankish Empire and went off to Iceland and places like that. Uh, the climate conditions may have been favorable. It may have been relatively warm. Uh, there's a lot of debate about the settlement of Greenland uh, in this regard in particular. Um, we know that by the 12th and 13th centuries, Greenland was becoming too cold for the Scandinavians uh, and not for the Inuit, who were better adapted to real polar conditions. Um, but, um, you know, this is something that is uh, a, a, of crucial importance in tracing the history of climate. Uh, and is uh, hotly debated, but it certainly looks as if it gets colder in the 13th, 14th century, 14th century particularly, uh, throughout um, Europe and the Atlantic, and uh, probably warmer in the 10th and 11th centuries when this expansion is taking place. And then finally, there's a cult of personal valor uh, that is even stronger than that of uh, early medieval Europe, a male cult of uh, violent military bravery and the opportunity to demonstrate that uh, was a kind of competitive sport. The Viking raids in England and the continent begin around 800. Uh, one of the first stunning events is the sack of the island monastery of Lindisfarne on the coast, the um, eastern coast of uh, northern England. The monastery of Lindisfarne was sacked by the Vikings in 797. Charlemagne was able to uh, repulse these raids uh, and the English as well. But the civil wars that we were talking about among the sons of Louis the Pious um, started to um, encouraged the Vikings indirectly by the disunity of the Frankish Empire, the wasting of military resources on what was in effect a kind of civil war, um, uh, but also the Vikings just get stronger and uh, more ambitious because their raids on relatively well-organized Britain um, uh, start to reach their height in um, the 830s. So you start having the abandonment of monasteries, for example, the abandonment of Lindisfarne and the moving of its relics. So the relics of St. Cuthbert of York move around a lot. Uh, uh, monks on the western coast of France uh, m abandon their monasteries and uh, uh, move their communities and relics further inland. Um, the Vikings seem to jockey between emphasizing raids on the Frankish Empire and on England, uh, but basically they're doing both. 
they start to spend the winter, what's called overwintering, in the late 830s, early 840s. And that's a sinister sign from the point of view of the English, Irish, and uh, Franks, because that means that they're going from raiding to some form of settling. And if they can spend the winter and not just the <coughs> classic raiding season, why not just stay permanently? So um, they start coming up the rivers, they start plundering uh, uh, cities that are not uh, sufficiently fortified. Uh, uh, a monk in the 860s writes, the number of ships grows every year. And you have the feeling of just this uh, um, complete takeover. Now that's the monastic point of view. The monasteries were ideal targets because they're rich, isolated, uh, and um, uh, minimally fortified. Uh, but nevertheless, the, um, uh, the Carolingians have no fleet to match the Viking ships. The way to stop the Vikings, and it was only really implemented um, uh, in the 870s and 880s, the way to stop the Vikings was with fortified bridges. If you built a bridge that the Vikings could not go past without fighting and fortified it sufficiently and had sufficient numbers of troops, you would stymie them. Uh, and uh, this is eventually what happens in the late 9th century. The Vikings are defeated at the gates of Paris in 888 um, and 885-886, um, uh, rather. And they start accommodating with the uh, European rulers. That is to say, they are given lands to settle uh, and then um, uh, promised uh, made to promise to stop raiding. And in effect, they start to settle down towards the end of the 9th century, uh, beginning of the 10th century. So that, for example, a treaty in 911 with the Frankish West Frankish ruler, the ruler we can start to call the King of France, uh, allows them to settle in northwestern France in a territory that henceforth was called Normandy. Uh, or, you know, same in French. Uh, Normandy, the territory of the Northmen, which is one, what they're usually referred to uh, in the sources rather than Vikings. The territory of the Northmen. So Normandy in 911 was a province settled by Vikings, nominally loyal to the King of France. The Vikings very quickly lose their language by the time of the Duke of Normandy, William the Conqueror, a uh, hundred and fifty or so years later, uh, they are Norman. They speak French. Uh, they are more French than anything else, although uh, a bit different. Uh, their ships still look a bit like Viking ships. If you know the Bayeux Tapestry, which is this embroidery that shows the history of the Norman conquest of England, uh, their ships look very much like our image of Viking ships. In England, uh, the 860s are the zenith of their destruction. Uh, they actually, in effect, partition England between a north, uh, um, a, an eastern and a western part. The eastern part becomes a territory called the Dane Law. Uh, the, uh, uh, place where the Danes have settled. And their indirect effect on England is to force the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms to unify. 
So rather than the multiple kingdoms that we looked at at Bede's time, Mercia, East Anglia, Northumbria, we have the Western Kingdom, formerly called Wessex, which under King Alfred in the 860s to 880s becomes really uh, the sole Anglo-Saxon Kingdom of England and gradually defeats the Vikings, eventually uh, kicking them out of uh, the British Isles altogether by about 930 or so. So the conquests in the Frankish and English realms are not permanent in the sense that uh, uh, there's minimal Scandinavian impact of a permanent sort on these places. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of people speaking Old Norse in either place in 1100, but their impact is tremendous in terms of organizing these places, creating networks, founding cities like um, uh, uh, Dublin, reorganizing kingdoms like Ireland, uh, creating Normandy, and uh, really uh, kind of uh, throwing the puzzle on the floor and reforming it. In the East and in the Atlantic, uh, here you have to imagine or sort of visualize Scandinavia sitting on the top of Europe. Um, the same effect that um, uh, encourages airlines to use polar routes as a shorter way to cross the globe also allows the Scandinavians in effect to choose their targets. Some of this is logical. Norway is much easier, much closer to the British Isles than you might think. It sort of sits on top of them. Um, and Sweden is much closer to uh, uh, the east uh, uh, via the north than one would think. But even Norway, for example, the modern kingdom of Norway, has a border with Russia. Uh, it uh, goes so far north, uh, and then it has this very little narrow um, uh, piece of land that is only about 30 miles from the important Russian port of Murmansk. And all of these places are relatively warm, given how far north they are because of the Gulf Stream. So um, just as um, uh, you know, London is surprisingly warm, considering that it's on the same latitude as uh, Newfoundland, so these uh, uh, northern parts of Scandinavia are the equivalent of you know, polar uh, wastes of uh, northern Canada, and uh, yet they are, um, uh, they're, they're cold enough. <laughs> the problem with them is they're really dark. Um, so they're dark for months at a time, but they're not all that cold. From this vantage point then, the East would uh, be a tempting source of uh, enterprise for Vikings, particularly but not exclusively from Scandinavia, especially in the 10th century. They would go via the Baltic Sea and the Gulf of Finland, down the Russian rivers like the Dnieper, Dnieper with a D, <coughs> to the uh, um, Black Sea, and the Volga to the Caspian Sea. They used these rivers as ways of reaching territories of Byzantine and of uh, caliphal influence. They uh, uh, traded 
raided when possible. Um, a lot of our descriptions of the Vikings by outsiders, uh, our most accurate descriptions are from Muslim travelers um, who describe who these people are, what their products are, um, even though very little remains in this region to uh, attest to the Vikings. The main evidence, as we said, are really coins taken back to Scandinavia. Their base, that is the Viking base in this eastern area, was what would become Kiev in modern Ukraine. And Kiev would be the first Russian Scandinavian kingdom uh, ruled by uh, a czar. They had ambitions to take over Constantinople, uh, a city that they called in sort of um, Tolkien-esque fashion, Mikkelgard. Mikkelgard meaning city, Mikkel meaning powerful. Mikkel still in Middle English, in Chaucer's English means uh, uh, um, uh, impressive, uh, uh, powerful. Uh, the, their attacks on Mikkelgard didn't work. Uh, they attacked in 860 and 941, and we've seen that Constantinople was able to fight off uh, more impressive enemies than this. Uh, they therefore were dealing with wealthy and established states well-organized states, better organized than the Carolingian Empire, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, and so states that they were capable of, um, well, states that were capable of defeating them. They uh, therefore came to these areas, Baghdad and Constantinople, or controlled by Baghdad and Constantinople, more as raiders, uh, I mean more as traders than as raiders. What did they bring to trade with? They have certain classic products, um, things from the North Sea, like um, walrus ivory, very highly prized. Um, uh, amber from the Baltic Sea. Amber used in jewelry and medicine. Uh, uh, a stone that's not really a stone, a thing that's much lighter than it looks like. Uh, credited with various kinds of mysterious or at least medicinal properties throughout the uh, Roman and Islam, formerly Roman and Islamic world. Um, arrows and swords, the West was very good at metalworking. Honey, hunting falcons, wax, but as I said, their two great commodities were slaves and furs. Slaves, these societies of the Byzantine Empire and the Caliphate always wanted more slaves. They had plenty of unpleasant labor as well as domestic <coughs> service shortages. And so uh, many of these slaves were Slavs, that is Slavic populations rounded up by the Vikings and then sold in Constantinople or Baghdad. Furs. Uh, on the one hand, furs like sable, marten, uh, mink that abounded in the eastern Baltic regions and in what's now uh, northern Russia were tremendously prized in a world in which central heating was non-existent. And although we may not think of modern Istanbul as particularly cold, uh, it's quite cold and damp. One can certainly understand the practical desire for furs uh, for well-off people in the Byzantine Empire. In the Caliphate, it may seem a little stranger. Baghdad is more noted for unbearable heat than 
cold. Uh, on the other hand, um, the caliphate includes territories like Afghanistan, um, eastern uh, Iran, uh, and uh, also keep in mind, as is the case with Palm Beach and Miami Beach, even as we speak now in late November, that um, uh, for certain people the prestige of the furs uh, transcends uh, any need for practical warmth. Um, so uh, these are the two great products. Um, so they're plunderers and extortionists, but they're fairly creative plunderers and extortionists. Uh, they create a, a number of trading cities, not only Kiev uh, further south, but the great city of Novgorod, sort of between the Baltic and um, um, the more modern city of Moscow. These cities are fortified, uh, leading one to assume that they weren't just um, free trade zones, that uh, other people raided them, or that the Vikings expected other people to try to revenge themselves on their kind of raiding and trading. So anyway, as we've said before, tra <coughs> trading and plundering are not necessarily totally uh, distinct. So um, finally the West. The Vikings begin to explore the Atlantic mostly from Norway. And beginning after the maximum period of raiding of England starts to tail off in the, um, in the 860s. These lands were uninhabited, Iceland or minimally inhabited, inhabited Greenland. Um, they were very attractive for hunting and for pasturing. Where the Vikings found a fair density of people, they tended not to stay. This is their problem with Newfoundland. They have a settlement in Newfoundland at a place whose modern name is uh, somewhat confusingly called Lance aux Meadows, sort of a French and English uh, compound. Lance aux Meadows in Newfoundland, one of a number of, certainly the most best-known Viking site. But there were um, uh, um, Native Americans who drove them out, not necessarily because they were superior in um, armament, but uh, it just wasn't really worth it to the Vikings uh, to stay. So their stay in Newfoundland is relatively brief. In order to go from Norway to Iceland, it's about 800 miles, and it took anywhere between one week and one month. Uh, the island is not as cold as its name suggests. It has glaciers, but um, you know, in the part that don't have glaciers, it's, uh, it's, not, um, uh, it's not all that cold. Um, again, the Gulf Stream. Uh, most of it is uninhabitable, but that's because of volcanic rock. I don't know how many of you have been to Iceland, but even the drive from the airport to Reykjavik is intimidating because it goes through this stuff called tufa, and you know, there are no trees, and there's sort of no prospect of anything uh, uh, growing there. 
but on the other hand, there are plenty of uh, um, nice coastal strips, mild climate, great pasture. There are almost no trees now, and there's a lot of debate about whether there were trees, whether they just cut them down and they couldn't be uh, uh, recultivated. Uh, re uh, but in fact, this is a very hospitable place. Rich pastures, sea mammals everywhere, <laughs> until Iceland completely lost its mind in the um, speculative atmosphere of the uh, decade preceding 2008, their main industry was cod fishing. Uh, they, uh, you know, then went into banking in a way that just staggers the mind uh, and uh, have gotten back into cod fishing, uh, <laughs> uh, my understanding is. Um, but they had lots and lots of other things. Um, uh, lots of seals, uh, which they killed for fur. Uh, walrus skin used for cable, for s ropes for ships. Uh, walrus ivory, another little creature called a narwhal that has a tusk that looks like a unicorn, well, uh, was taken for being a unicorn tusk. Uh, there's one in the cloisters, for example, that some of you are going to see uh, on the 7th of uh, December. Right. So the colonization of Iceland um, uh, begins uh, in um, uh, in uh, 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 eight seventy, and by nine thirty, the island is basically full. It's habitable land again. Very very small percentage of the land area was was uh, fully settled. We know a lot more about Iceland than any other part of Scandinavia uh, because of the extraordinary. Uh, quality and quantity of poetic stories, sagas, um, in which honor, treasure, and love of mayhem dominate. These are very violent and until a certain point were taken to be realistic portrayals of life in Iceland, just as if, say, 1950s and 1960s TV westerns were assumed to be a totally accurate portrayal of life everywhere in the United States in the 19th century. Uh, so these are, like Westerns, uh, wonderful stories of male violence with a certain amount of exaggeration, but nevertheless the reflection of customs, ways of speaking, uh, and social values. Towards the end of the 10th century, Greenland was explored um, under the leadership of Eric the Red, one of these renegades, so difficult and violent that he was exiled from both Norway and Iceland. Uh, he is the one who seems to have dubbed this new territory Greenland, um, a pioneer of deceptive advertising, I think it's fair to say, because warm as it may have been in the 10th century, uh, this doesn't seem, this is like, you know, uh, calling some uh, housing development, uh, uh, you know, um, warbling acres when in fact you just bulldozed all the trees in order to, to create the uh, development. So um, the uh, western coast of Greenland had rich pasture. Uh, the west is warmer than the east. Um, settlers came beginning in 986. Uh, there was even a bishopric established at a place called uh, uh, Gardar, another sort of uh, Tolkien-esque name, 
We don't know very many bishops who actually went to Gardar. Most of them ruled from Denmark uh, and sort of basically told their flock to get in touch with them if they needed them, uh, gave them their office hours and, uh, uh, you know, uh, had a phone that uh, took messages. But uh, uh, this uh, a settlement did not last. Greenland was more or less abandoned by 1400 uh, and then would later be in modern times resettled, um, uh, but this time by Denmark. And then finally, Norwegians from Greenland uh, settled what's now Labrador and Newfoundland, late 10th, early 11th centuries. They even wrote a saga called the Vinland Saga. Um, the Vinland map that's in the Beinecke Library that purports to show both uh, the uh, Chinese-Mongol Empire and uh, uh, the territories of Vinland in the New World is unfortunately a fake. Um, but, uh, as I said, these archaeological finds in Markland, as the Vikings called Labrador, or Vinland, as they referred to uh, uh, Newfoundland, uh, are real. They were settled about year 1000 and abandoned in 1020. So, here we are, 1020, or the year 1000, uh, and uh, I know that you will be asking uh, what has been accomplished since we began with 284. And this is a fair question because at first glance it would seem as if we're still uh, in a uh, world of declining population, uh, a rural society with very few urban centers, uh, a society of relatively little literacy, relatively small amounts of commerce, lots of violence, lack of governmental order, militarized society, all developments that we have been tracing since uh, the beginning. The optimistic take on this is that beginning with the material covered in the next course, there's a very rapid ascent from 1000 to about 1300. Uh, a tremendous growth of the European economy and a tremendous expansion of both population, uh, artistic, political, intellectual creativity that is the central period of the Middle Ages. The real mystery behind this, the sort of historical problem, is what explains the domination of Europe in the second millennium AD? In the first millennium most of which we've covered in this course. Uh, the dominant areas are the Mediterranean at the beginning, which includes Europe, but also includes North Africa, Egypt, the Middle East, uh, and modern Turkey. Uh, and indeed, those latter regions would outpace Europe, properly speaking. The first millennium is something of a catastrophe for Europe, at least by measurable statistics of a per capita GNP population, population density, urbanization, uh, um, nature. What then explains the domination of Europe after 1000? Uh, in some ways it's a slow process. The first European colonies don't really get established 
until the aftermath of Columbus's voyage in 1492. Uh, and then they get established incredibly rapidly and with surprisingly little effort, right? Mexico and Peru, these huge empires of the Aztecs, Mayans, and Incas, fall to a few hundred Spanish troops. And the uh, Spanish and Portuguese uh, uh, between 1492 and 1520 are all over the world, from Malacca in uh, modern Malaysia to <coughs> India to the Persian Gulf uh, to Mexico um, and uh, Peru. Well, we don't have to explain that. Uh, that's for another time. But suffice it to say that already in 1095, the European uh, Christian population is capable of putting together an army to conquer Jerusalem from Islam, a seemingly impossible job, uh, and certainly one that required uh, more than logistics and resources, but also a certain kind of, um, uh, if not fanaticism, at least a real motivation, religious motivation. Uh, but nevertheless, it is a sign of a certain kind of European power that one would not have thought in the year 1000 uh, was possible. In the year 1000, the smart money, the um, you know, Brookings Institute, think tank kind of Rand Corporation, Bain Consulting, you know, all the smart people would have said, <laughs> don't put any money into Europe, you've got to be kidding. Uh, the coming regions are the same as uh, over the last couple hundred years. Maybe Byzantium, you know, a cautious buy. Definitely the Islamic kingdoms, even if the caliphate is having some problems. Qua caliphate, their successor states, Fatimid Egypt, just awesome, awesome. This, this is going to dominate the next millennium. Uh, our, uh, you know, algorithms agree on this. Um, and uh, all sorts of promising signs in Eastern Europe with the creation of Russia. You're more prescient, younger, hot shoddier um, uh, consultants would have identified that. But Germany, uh, Italy, France, uh, um, uh, the British Isles uh, certainly uh, would have seemed discouraging. Yet there are some promising signs. As it turns out, the Vikings are the last invaders. The Vikings um, coincide with invasions from the Magyars. Magyars, that's what they call themselves to this day. They're known as the Hungarians to the outside world out of a confusion between them and the Huns. Uh, they actually have nothing to do with the Huns. Uh, but they were um, quite frightening land-based raiders of the 10th century. And there were also attacks by ships from Muslim North Africa against Europe, what the sources refer to as Saracen pirates. Um, and they plunder Rome in 843, for example. Uh, so um, Europe is certainly in the 10th century faced with yet another wave of invasions. And I think I warned you at the beginning of this course that it was basically about uh, uh, invasions and heresies and that you'd do well if you just concentrated on those things. So we're heresy free at the moment, but in the 10th century, certainly how these invasions get. As it happens, they're the last that Western Europe would experience. Not Eastern Europe, because Eastern Europe would be subject to the Mongols, who would, for example, score a tremendous victory over the armies of Poland, uh, armies over the Christian king of Hungary uh, as well in the 13th century. Um, but this seems to be the end of invasions, the beginning of a period of population increase, 
better nutrition, better harvests, perhaps explicable to more settled conditions, perhaps explainable by improved climate, um, perhaps just explainable by uh, human determination and enterprise. The Christianization of Europe <coughs> is one of the tremendous phenomena that characterizes our period. And while as a religious movement, I have no investment in saying that Christianity is either an advantage or disadvantage. In terms of creating settled, organized polities, the Christianization of places like Scandinavia, Iceland, or Bohemia, the modern Czech Republic more or less, or Hungary, or Russia, all of which take place in the 10th or early 11th centuries, all of these Christianization conversions bring these polities into a kind of European cultural area, political alliances, trade networks. So Christianization is as much a sign of civilization or at least of a kind of economic development uh, as a, uh, a, you know, um, a thing in itself. So between 200 and 1,000, what are the big differences? Whether these are accomplishments or not uh, is debatable. Certainly the population has declined. Over an 800-year period, the population of Europe is considerably less, not only in towns like Rome, which has gone from something on the order of over 500,000, perhaps as much as a million, to 30,000 maximum. It is a much less Mediterranean-centered world. The sort of geopolitics have changed. The Mediterranean has broken apart into Islamic, Byzantine, and Latin uh, uh, regions. It is Christian, most of it. Most of Europe, apart from uh, Spain, is Christian. And this entails all sorts of cultural as well as religious changes. It is also less learned, and the learning that there is is a monopoly of the church. There is less lay or secular learning than there was. There are some continuities, however. The dominant language of learning and administration remains in 1000 as it was in 200 Latin. Roman culture is still the ideal and still, uh, in effect, the practice, even though it may be adapted to things like churches. But what has been called Romanesque or simply Roman architecture, particularly that of the 11th and early 12th centuries, uh, uh, will indeed be based on Roman principles. And as we saw with Charlemagne, the idea of Rome, the idea of the empire, is extremely durable. And although Charlemagne's empire is dissolved in the course of the late 9th century, it is at least partially revived in the 10th century under a new dynasty uh, whose first ruler is Otto the first, Otto the Great. Uh, in 962, he's crowned Roman emperor in Rome by the Pope. His empire does, include, does not include the West, so it's not France. It's more Germany 
than anything else. But this empire would endure until Napoleon, uh, until 1804, in other words, for uh, uh, something on the order of uh, 850 years. So to some extent, um, we are, what we have accomplished is we've arrived at the point of the emergence of something that can be called Europe, other than a geographical term, something that can be called Christendom, uh, not using that in its triumphalist sense, but simply as a kind of cultural description of a certain part of the world. Um, and we've reached the point where we can start to talk about the West, this very funny term still used, particularly in popular geopolitical uh, tracts like you know, the West and the rest, these kinds of uh, uh, statements of the West or the decline of the West. We're at the point of the rise of the West. And that's where I am going to uh, leave you with, uh, thanks for your participation in this course. Thanks for making this a wonderful semester for me. I hope uh, a lot of fun for you as well. Thanks a lot.